This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, so in this um, version of This Is Your Life, um, we are uh, going to start in, we're going to take it in order uh, of the speakers. And uh, so that means, Alyssa, um, can, can you come up and um, regale us with some answers? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so, so one of the things you spoke about was um, uh, the, the problems with um, meat production uh, in terms of uh, the impact on planetary health. And so we've got a, a couple of questions about that. Uh, so what about bioengineered meat uh, for the future? Um, do, do you think this could help both with um, uh, what it does in, in terms of saving the amount of methane produced uh, as well as um, reducing health risks? That one's easy. Yes, absolutely. Test tube meat all the way. I really, I'm a huge fan, and I teach a lot of this information um, to my graduate students. We're making unbelievable strides in terms of actually being able to synthetically laboratory, produce meat in a laboratory. Um, and a lot of animal rights activists are also very pleased with this uh, because it is ethically produced meat. It is sustainable. Um, I think that we have some cognitive barriers we might need to get past in terms of thinking about growing our hamburgers in a Petri dish, um, but it is, it is possible. So yes, I, that is actually, there are big strides being made in that direction. So um, one of the things that uh, that does, uh, if you have people retaining their original, mm-hmm. uh, their uh, um, desire for meat, uh, is it, it maintains that whole system. Um, I, think, I think you envisage the a possibility of a, of a world without meat-eating at all. Derek, could, could you talk about what you think the role of uh, vegetarianism and veganism is uh, now and for the future? I can't. It's a, it's a very... Um, <laughs> I tried to dance very carefully along that line, but Richard just brought me right over to this uh, big debate. So this is actually a, a very contentious debate uh, amongst n- clinicians and nutritionists and nutritional anthropologists, actually, um, and eaters at large. So I think that there is... Um, I don't envision a world, personally, I can talk about myself. Um, as a nutritional anthropologist, I don't see a world in which we are no longer eating meat. But I also, I think it's a numbers game. So the numbers that I produced were from 2017. And I think that most of us, by the demographer's projections in terms of what the global population will be by 2050. So I do think that those projections with the current state of factory farming and food production in general are not sustainable. There are um, so I think that we are making a lot of strides in terms of the way that meat is being um, so the way that our animals are being treated and fed and the way that meat itself is being processed and this is actually moving out of the developing world so the U.S. is it's actually pretty good uh, internationally speaking and we're now doing a lot of work in the developing world with small scale non-industrial populations in terms of how they are treating their livestock so this this is a global pattern and something that the U.N. has been putting a lot of money and energy into addressing in terms of vegetarianism in general um, those numbers are on the rise globally as well. So meat eating is going up, but so are people who, um, in the post-industrialized West in particular, you have a big shift to vegetarianism and veganism. So you see a switch. So the developing world is eating more meat, which is actually the majority of the world in terms of population size. And those in the post-industrialized West are eating more plants. Um, And this also, in terms of sustainability, the whole farm-to-table movement has really taken off 
And if you're interested, there's a lot of um, really interesting information available on the internet about vertical farming uh, and about shipping containers that are now um, very popular in big cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, where you have indoor kind of hydroponic growing in these shipping containers that are outside in the parking lots of these eateries. So it really is farm to table. They're just micro farms in shipping containers. So if you envisage a, a world in which meat eating is greatly reduced, then uh, what are you doing to, um, well, let's say men? Um, because I, <laughs> male chimpanzees eat more meat than females, uh, and male humans eat more uh, meat than female humans. Uh, are you challenging our evolutionary psychology in a major way here? And why, where, where do you get the sex difference come from? Hmm. Well, first I would like to say I... I'm not, I, I hope that I am not um, doing anything intentionally to, to, to men or women or anyone. Um, I think that that is a, that's a very interesting question and one I will try to handle. Um, hmm, I think that the old adage, you are what you eat, I mean, this comes from somewhere, right? This is a, this is a concept that is, is not foreign to any of us. And I think that humans have a very, it's not something we talked about today, but humans have a very emotional response to the food that they eat. There are also um, a lot of cultural practices and ritual practices that accompany food. I mean, we didn't talk at all today about cuisine or dietary differences around the world. Or, um, so there's, there's a, lot, a lot more to be said, and I think that we're, we're trending into that part of this um, with that question. But I think that particularly, clearly, all the men in this room are, are confident enough in their masculinity that I don't think that it is at all tethered to eating uh, meat. So that is how I will answer that question. All the men in my life don't need to eat meat. All right, you can't beat that. So let's go to something else. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, here's a question. What do you think of Gary Taubes' work, uh, suggesting it's refined carbohydrates and not dietary fat that cause the diseases you mentioned? I think that's very interesting work, and if, um, if I had been asked, to, I have a lot to say about plant foods as well, probably more to say about plant foods than I do about the nutritional significance of meat. Um, I do think that refined foods in general are highly problematic um, for nutritional reasons. I think a lot of this has to do with additives in addition to just refined carbohydrates. So I think it's very promising work. I think it's very interesting, and I think that we're asking the same questions. What is good for what is what are what is good for our bodies to eat? What are we adapted to eat? Um, we're asking the same questions we've been asking for decades and decades, but our methods are becoming more elegant and refined. So I think I'm still waiting for more information to come. But whoever penned that question, I'm more than happy to talk to you in more detail about some of that specific work afterward because I, I'm really I'm very interested in refined carbs as well. Uh, so finally, uh, we have a question that uh, it comes straight out of um, uh, the Salk Institute, as it were. Um, the enzyme for um, decomposing a new 5GC. Uh, when did it get lost and why? And is it there in other meat eaters? Oh, maybe I can ask Ajit Varki to come up and answer that question. Um, so the CMAH gene was lost to... About approximately two million years ago. Um, so what we know, so that was a very complicated slide. And um, as I said before, I did my postdoc in Ajit's lab, but I did a very small portion of a very large and important study. Um, I, I mostly just 
did the lyophilizer and drove to local dairies and got all the dairy to analyze. But it's um, it's a really important study. And the reason the study is important, the reason everything coming out of the Varky lab is really important is because as a scientist, I like many different vectors, right? So if you can get evidence from many different lines, okay, all right, now now we're saying something. And what's really interesting about the new 5GC case is it doesn't matter what lens you're using. It doesn't matter if you're using animal modeling. It doesn't matter if you're looking. Um, it really doesn't matter. All the evidence, all the arrows are pointing to this. So the evolutionary story, which I did not say in my one little slide, we lost this gene. So what, when you find new 5GC in pretty much almost every animal, you do not find it in us other than what we are eating. So that's where the metabolic incorporation comes in. So we lost the ability to synthesize this, this particular gene, approximately 2 million years ago. So it is very much integral to this story of meat eating. So how and when our species started eating meat and what the kind of metabolic consequences are of that consumption, they're important. So whether it's at the cellular level, whether you're dealing with animal modeling, whether you're in the Varky lab like I was, lyophilizing cheese, all of it is part of this big story of humans and their history of meat eating. Thank you very much, Alyssa. Uh, Rebecca, are you willing to come and answer some questions? <laughs> She's shaking her head, but <laughs> that's not the way the game works. <laughs> okay. okay. So the <laughs> you're looking nervous. You're not confident in your masculinity. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so... Um, we have a question that actually came in from the streaming world, um, and it is about the female hunters. So the question is about their uh, age and fertility status. What is, do they have a special age and fertility status? Are they generally older? Uh, are they pregnant? Uh, characterization? Um, yeah, so women hunt throughout their lives um, when, uh, it, when they're girls. Um, they hunt uh, very small lizards, little lizards called Wingigidi in there on the rocks. And you turn over the rocks and look for the little, little this is specialized kid activity, hunting for these little lizards. Um, as they get older, they shift toward hunting for the monitor lizards. But when women are in their sort of teen and reproductive years, they split their time uh, between hunting monitor lizards, hunting Wingigidi in the rocks, and picking fruit and doing a lot of more sedentary activities. This is because babies are heavy and they're slow, and you want to go hunting, and you have all these kids with you, and they complain. It's boring. They want to go hunt when you get in the rocks. So you hunt with them for a while, or you hunt for a while, and then you got to go back and do things with the kids. So um, when women are younger, and they're looking after the kids more, um, they'll be doing less hunting. And as you become older, indeed, as a postmenopausal woman, uh, you become almost a specialized small animal hunter. 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 Not a specialized small animal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I almost said that, didn't I? <laughs> no, that's good. Okay. All right, so, so here's another question about, about the women, um, uh, about uh, the, the ecology uh, of the situation. Uh, the question is, is it possible that the willingness of the Matu to share is related to the abundance of the food resource? And the observation here is that the women in the photos and videos looked very well fed, even maybe overweight. And so you know, are they actually consuming some refined carbohydrates as well? I would, I would say yes, that that is correct. 
um, Mardu contemporary diet in the Mardu community uh, ranges between about 30 and 50 percent. This was between 2000 and 2010 when I was collecting a lot of this data. Between about 30 to 50 percent bush food, and then the remainder um, in the form of food that's purchased at a little shop in the community. Um, what is people? It's very expensive to purchase food in the shop, and people get about um, a, a very small amount of money fortnightly from the Australian government, um, which is basically enough to supply maybe half the calories. So they generally end up buying a lot of white flour and making bread out of it, and that's basically what people subsist on. Um, so diet, diet, contemporary diet today is actually quite, quite poor in many respects. So that's why they're, a lot of ladies are overweight. Also, we have problems of diabetes and similar sorts of metabolic issues that you find in a lot of indigenous communities. So, so given that, do you think it's possible that uh, because they are relatively well off in that respect, I mean from an energy point of view, uh, that they're more willing to share? Or do, or do you think that's uh, something that goes back into uh, times when they didn't have that resource? Uh, so no, definitely um, as food becomes less scarce, people share less. So when everybody has a, equal amounts of food, food is very abundant, there's less sharing that goes on. Sharing becomes more and more critical um, the less food there is. And there's great efforts made to ensure that people who are hungry don't go hungry. So there's efforts made to ensure that people who are hungry don't go hungry, but then the opposite also happens, that when they have more, then they, they make efforts to keep it all for themselves? No, actually they don't. <laughs> um, when, most of the time, whenever there's a large harvest of something brought in, um, it's shared really widely. Did I, have I just contradicted myself? <laughs> Well, well, maybe they share equally at all times, but it sounded as though you were saying they share more when resources are scarce. I, I think that, yeah, there's a, there's a greater emphasis on ensuring the equality um, of food consumption when food is scarce across individuals, when there's a lot of asynchrony in how much each individual has. So that's what we all want to hear, that, that, <laughs> that people are nice in that way. Yeah. Now, here's a specific question about, uh, about the... The sort of the utility of the sharing is more protein available to be given to nursing mothers. Uh, um, I would think. Actually, I don't know the answer to that question. I would. I would think the women would get it themselves if they needed it. But, 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 but I, no, there's no special favoring of. There's, the, I, I'm pregnant. Give me more food, or uh, there's nothing like that. Not. Not that I know of. Yeah. No. Okay, so um, here's a, a slightly wacky question to, uh, oh, to no. end up with. Um, <laughs> uh, is there any support for the idea that female involvement in hunting and gathering has led to modern female shopping? Shopping? Hmm. I, I'm not sure how to answer that question. <laughs> um, no? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, so, so those were the humans, and now let's have the chimps. And um, uh, in terms of having the chimps, I think it would be great to have Ian and David come up together because uh, the questions are rather similar for the two of them. And we'll see if uh, they can do some male bonding or, or uh, uh, illustrate some of the more violent propensities of, uh, of chimpanzees. I'm very low-ranking. <laughs> Um, I'm old and senescent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, 
here's a question that's very specific to Ian uh, and or David. Um, <laughs> what is the explanation for why bonobos eat and uh, hunt less? Is it uh, correlated with female social dominance, testosterone? Uh, bonobos are genetically closer to Homo sapiens and may represent insights into inheritance uh, against acquired behaviors. David, you want to take the first shot at that? Well, I'll answer the, not quite the last part of the question. First, they aren't closer to humans. Both are equally close to humans phylogenetically, evolutionarily. Um, that's a good question, and I don't think we really know the answer other than to say that, um, first of all, there is a lot of variation, as Ian pointed out, among different chimpanzee communities, not just different populations or chimps in different habitats. Um, so um, there are chimpanzees who hunt about as infrequently as bonobos do, as far as we could tell. But um, the, still, a big difference seems to be that bonobos rarely hunt monkeys. And in some places, apparent, there, there are no observations of bonobos hunting monkeys at all. It's only recently that people have started to report some from Loikotal in, in the DRC, for example, and one other site now. Um, and that might have something to do with the fact that um, bonobo males, their behavioral repertoire and their social strategies are quite different from those of male chimpanzees. Um, they occasionally form coalitions with each other, but they don't form alliances if they, or with each other. If they do, it's much more likely to be with a female than, or, or if they do, it's with a female, not a male. And there are differences in the power balance between the sexes, and it might contribute to simply less inclination on the part of males to take the risks involved in hunting. But we, we don't really know the answer yet. I'd like to also add that um, we don't necessarily want to equate aggression uh, with hunting as well. It's, I, I see it as hunting mon monkeys is foraging, and I mean, it looks awful to us because they're tearing you know, little monkeys apart, but um, work from Ngogo um, and a little bit of the work that I've done has demonstrated that there's, there's some decoupling of, you know, of chimp, chimp, chimp aggression, testosterone, and um, and hunting behavior. So it's complicated. So, so could, you, yeah, um, there actually is some very nice data that Marissa Sobolewski collected at Ngogo showing that when males, male chimpanzees go on boundary patrols, so this is intercommunity aggression, um, testosterone levels go up. And in fact, they go up before males set out on a patrol as if somehow they're anticipating doing this. She didn't find the same difference with hunting. Um, so no increase in testosterone associated with hunting. So you, you spoke about the differences between bonobos and chimps and the way that they hunt. Could you just give a little bit more of a description about the way chimpanzees do hunt? For instance, uh, do they go on hunts to, to look for opportunities to find monkeys, or is it uh, all uh, the result of uh, running into monkeys by chance? And then when they do run into monkeys, what happens? Um, Ian, do you want to take the first step? Sure. 
The answer, of course, because they're chimpanzees, is that it varies. And I think that's one of the, the big take-home messages from this, from this symposium, is that we should move away from talking about chimps writ large and talk more about chimps in different communities and understanding why we see the differences that we do. So um, at Thai uh, and at Ngogo, uh, the chimps do appear to go specifically on uh, patrols or in search of red colobus monkeys. They go, they go silent, although they're in the middle of their territory. They're making a beeline for where the monkeys are, and they definitely seem to be searching for them. At Gombe, Kanyuara, and elsewhere, it does not seem to be the case. It's definitely uh, more as though they are on, they're moving from one fruit tree to the next, and they may take a slight detour if they hear monkeys, but it doesn't seem like they're really moving specifically to find them. Then um, I, can talk I can talk about Gombe in particular, about what happens when a hunt occurs. Um, it's usually, um, though there's a period of time when uh, usually the males um, gather together underneath the monkeys and they're looking up and, and sort of trying to assess, in my mind, they're trying to assess whether or not there are vulnerable individuals, the juveniles and infants. And then one or more individual chimps will rush up into the trees and chase the monkeys. It's my um, impression, and also I've data to back this up, that um, at least at Gombe, it certainly seems to be uh, every chimp for himself. There does not seem to be any kind of, of coordination, and it's, it's what we call a byproduct mutualism in the sense that each individual is selfishly trying to get his own monkey, but in doing so creates chaos and makes it easier for other guys to, to hunt. And we've actually found um, evidence of specific individuals who are m more keen hunters um, who sort of catalyze these, these hunts. I don't know if you want to add anything. Variation, yes. Um, the majority of red colobus hunts that we've seen at Ngogo have happened during these patrols when the chimpanzees seem to look for monkeys to hunt and will sometimes go for a couple of hours um, to try to find some. And then they may find some and decide not to hunt because the group is too small or it's just a bad situation. And um, the subject of uh, deferred consumption came up today with reference to humans and, and earlier hominins carrying parts of butchered carcasses or entire animals from one place to another and then um, processing them further and consuming them there. Um, chimpanzees don't do that except on a very small scale when they will carry some meat away from the immediate location of a hunt. But I have seen them wait and patiently follow a group of red colobus or simply wait under the monkeys for an hour or an hour and a half and then the monkeys do something stupid. They, they put themselves in a bad position, and the chimps are up and after them like that. And then also, um, it's, I would agree, it's very difficult to see on most occasions whether there is any real coordination among the individuals involved. Occasionally, it's easy. So I once remember seeing Mingus at Ngogo, who was... Um, 
Not the best at capturing monkeys, but he was the least afraid of taking on adult male red colobus, and he went up into a tree and got underneath this group of monkeys who were stationary above the chimps, and there were 18 other adult male chimpanzees on the ground below him, and he sat there for maybe 15, 20 minutes, waiting for anyone else to come up to join him, and none of them did, so eventually he came down and no hunt. Um, But at other times, it's just chaos. But to, to us. Right. But the chimpanzees, as Ian said, are, are at least very good at playing off of each other and recognizing when someone else has done something that puts a monkey in a vulnerable position um, and then making an effort to, to pick it off. Uh, just to uh, change the topic a little bit from this, um, you've already spoken about... Uh, your skepticism about any kind of relationship between violence uh, towards members of their own species and hunting. Um, however, there are a couple of questions about this, and, uh, and let me uh, put it this way. Uh, to what do you attribute the fact that chimpanzees are both violent and hunters, while bonobos are not, and that in humans there is uh, lots of uh, evidence showing that there is a relationship between um, hunting and violence, so... Uh, uh, Keith Otterbaum found that uh, the groups in which you had a uh, higher percentage of the um, diet coming from hunting uh, were more likely to be involved in war. Uh, any, any explanations for these correlations? Is this question coming from the crowd? Or it, is it coming it, from it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, where do I start? We have a limited amount of time here. Um, <laughs> Uh, bonobos are not quite as nonviolent as the as popular literature would have it, but there do seem to be some real differences between bonobos and chimpanzees on that score. Um, bonobos generally are afraid of hostile towards neighbors, although there are intriguing reports of members of presumably different bonobo communities encountering each other and having peaceful and even friendly interactions with each other, which would not happen in chimpanzees. Um, and bonobos are not known to engage in chimpanzee patrol-like behavior, going to look for opportunities to make attacks on neighbors. Um, and whether that really contributes to, in, in itself, to the difference in hunting frequencies and in particular differences in the hunting monkeys. Um, again, it's a good question, and it's, it's hard to be certain. Um, when it comes to... Um, the, the human ethnographic record, I happen to be teaching, co-teaching a course now with a couple of my colleagues that we call the Anthropology of War. Um, and I could probably go on far too long about the, the questions about the variation in the reported frequency of warfare among historically documented hunter-gatherer groups, for example, but I don't think it's that simple that you can just look at a few figures and say, oh, well, this society hunted more than that one, and also they engaged in war more. Um, in fact, um, the, there, there are some problems with the literature on the, the subject of um, variation in however we define it, and I'm begging a big question there in the frequency of, of war among hunter-gatherers. I should just add that with regard to bonobos hunting, we still don't have fundamental data on uh, the, the rate at which they're encountering potential prey. So that's, that's uh, one possible explanation. 
Okay, I'm duly put in my place, and um, I'm going to resort to a final question um, which raises a question about conservation. And the question is, do indigenous people living where chimps hunt um, primates also hunt and eat primates themselves? Certainly around Gombe, there is a taboo against eating primates, particularly chimpanzees, so um, that's good. Um, however, there are, we do have problems with uh, traps that are set for ungulates that chimpanzees will uh, potentially step in and get, get caught. It's not as nearly as big as a problem as, as it is at, at Kibali. But. When we come to humans, then, then we really encounter variation. And there's tremendous cultural variation even in the same parts of Africa in terms of people's interest in eating bushmeat, as it's called. And in some places, chimpanzees and gorillas are food. And it's been a huge conservation issue in parts of Central and West Africa. In Kibale, for example, fortunately, at least until recently, people living around this national park did not regard primates as food. That has started to change initially with baboons, um, which cause a lot of problems because they raid people's crops, and um, also they are legally vermin in Uganda, so it's not illegal to kill them. Um, But unfortunately, we do now have at least one case and possibly more of people going after chimpanzees to get meat. Um, hopefully, that's not going to continue. Thank you very much, David and Ian. <laughs> um, Jill, uh, we welcome you. And um, oh, you've got another question? You're going to ask me a question? Or, or? Okay, all right. <laughs> Is it a good one? I don't know, I didn't look at it. Okay, all right. Well, uh, I wanted to start off with, with uh, just a, a question clarifying some of the, uh, the methodological issues. Uh, if you could observe male and female Fongoli chimps equally, do you think that the uh, amount of female hunting would increase, decrease, or stay the same? Oh, I think it would definitely increase. So, like I said, we have focal male subjects that we follow from when they get up in the morning to when they go to sleep at night. We're taking data every five minutes. <clears throat> there are times of the year when we never, they never leave our sight because we have really great visibility. The females are there, and it's a very cohesive community, so we're rarely without females. But, um, again, I'm not targeting them. The thing about the bush baby hunting is it is um, audible. Uh, and so you can hear the sound of the tool hitting into the, the tree branch. So when I hear that, or if I see it, I abandon my male, and I go <laughs> observe whoever is hunting at the time. So um, we've, we've got some good information on females, but I think that we're really underestimating what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so if, uh, if uh, the females are going to be doing it even more, uh, do you already have a sense of uh, the way this is inherited? Uh, is there any possibility that... Uh, the daughters uh, of um, the mothers who hunt a lot with sticks, with tools, are doing it more themselves? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a great question. It's something we're looking at now, so we have um, enough data so we can look at 
in, um, individuals as they were infants, juveniles, adolescents, and now even some adults, and look at the behavior of their mother. So, you know, I would expect that uh, these two top high-ranking females that hunt a lot might have kids that, that are good hunters as well, and I would expect to see some sex differences, like has been found at Gombe with termite fishing, um, but it's, we're just kind of in the, the midst of analyses right now. It, um, you know, just qualitatively, there are some Families, for example, I didn't mention Lucille, but she's also a, a prominent bush baby hunter, and her kids seem uh, especially um, precocious in terms of hunting. And so I would expect to see some change, some differences there, but I'm just, you know, I can't say for sure yet. Okay, so <clears throat> meat theft, you said, is, is not very uh, common in the Fongoli chimps. So there's a question about why that is. Uh, is it because they all hunt? And uh, so they're all getting lots of meat, or do they all hunt because theft is, is relatively rare? I mean, I kind of go, I would kind of say the latter. Um, again, it's something that, that we're looking at. I think there's, you know, there's incentive to hunt. Um, one thing that, one of the hypotheses that I'm looking at is because of that skewed sex ratio, it could be that males are tolerant as a form of, you know, mating strategy. That's just one of the hypotheses. And um, so do they share more with females that are in estrus or with certain females? I, ha I will say that preliminary data shows that there's not the support for the meat for sex hypothesis, um, but that is definitely a hypothesis we're looking at. So does this have to do, can this, this skewed sex ratio at Fungoli explain what I see as, as male tolerance? Um, and again, you know, we find some support for it with the preliminary evidence, so I expect it to, to hopefully um, stand up. I'm not hopefully, but perhaps it will. But there are a number of different ideas. I guess one is that, you know, there do seem to be some trends that you see in West African chimps where there might be some differences compared to East African subspecies. And so you see these grouping behaviors at Thai where you have a lot of males and females together. You see the same thing at Gombe. Um, so that's also something that we're taking into account. Or could it be a subspecies difference? So and, and with the sharing patterns, uh, did you say that uh, they share more with unrelated individuals than their own offspring? <laughs> They could, do. Could you say a little bit more about that? That seems like a particularly odd thing to do. Sure, yeah. So, the, yeah, the females obviously haven't read the literature. And so uh, we expected, you know, uh, a couple of hypotheses that we, we tested. Would, one would be the kin selection hypothesis. So you expect to share with your kids. And that we were really surprised. Oh, I find it funny. But it, we were really surprised to find that that was not the case. And um, not only did they share with adult males, but they also shared with adult females. Um, and so that's definitely something that we're looking into. We have a, a bigger sample size, but I believe our initial analysis was of t over 200 and 70 dyadic events. And so, um, yeah, that, that was really interesting. Uh, males share with females as well as other adult males. And again, the meat for sex hypothesis has not been supported. So kids, you know, offspring do get um, a share, but that, that is still surprising to me. They don't get more than they do. So uh, one final question uh, about the hunting strategy. Uh, do they already know uh, when they're approaching a tree if there's a galago in there when they start poking with sticks, or is it just all exploratory? <laughs> You know, that's a, really, that's a really good question. It's something that we're exploring now. So I have actually someone studying Galagos at my site. She just, well, she'll start next week. We've been trying to study them. We have various ways of doing it. But uh, one of the big questions is the availability and counter rate. So I think it's opportunistic. But they do revisit sites where they've 
captured galagos before. Um, it seems to me there's a definite age difference. So adults will abandon a site quite quickly. And so they may go up and just look in and leave it. They may go up, make a tool, stab around in there for a while. Um, I don't know if you could see her doing that on the film, but they'll smell it and so, um, sometimes even taste the tip. And um, adults will abandon sites sometimes quite quickly, and then immature individuals will come and just keep at, keep at it for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. So I assume that they can assess whether or not there's a galago there fairly quickly, um, but we're not sure. So we have different methods. We have a bore scope that we've been using, which is what a plumber uses to look into drain pipes. And so we, <laughs> I've been having my field assistant climb trees and use this bore scope to try to see you know, what's going on. He doesn't really like that very much. Um, <laughs> That's only worked out so, so you know, it's okay. But so now we're, we're really um, doing a, a systematic studies of the bush baby themselves because we think a lot of what's going on, at least in terms of the tool-assisted hunting, and um, I didn't talk about it, but it's a very focused season. I call it bush baby season. Um, that probably has to do a lot with the Galago behavior itself. So I think it's just great that uh, these new discoveries are still coming out, and it means that new students should be going out to the field finding new places to do the kind of work that Jill has done. Thank you. Jim, I think it's time for me to turn over. So launch in. Uh, Margaret, are you still here? Hi, Margaret. Got some questions for you. And... uh, We've got a very specific one and a very general one. So this will kind of span the range. Yes. So which do you want first? (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you the the specific one. Um, Do colobine monkeys fit the C3, C3, C4 model that you presented given their uh, specialized digestive systems and their, um, uh, you know, end-stage digestion process? They do, actually. Um, They don't eat C3, C4. So they are actually going only after C3 leaves. Um, Or there is one that goes after lichens, and those happen to be C3. (laughs) So, yes, it's all C3. Now for a slightly bigger picture. there's a, a theory that associates the consumption of meat not only with all the behavioral traits that made us human, but specifically with the um, encephalization, the evolution of larger mm-hmm. brains mm-hmm. in uh, humans and other primates. It, do you think is this supported by the uh, by the evidence? An, associ- an association between consumption of meat and meat byproducts playing a role in encephalization. I want to say that I happen to agree completely with Richard's point about the fat. The problem with fat is that it is not going to record in the appetite. It is not picked up. So the C3, C4 that I'm seeing cannot be fat. So um, there must be some meat eating going along because... um, you don't see it. So the question is, do I think that has anything to do with encephalization? I think the fat does, because I think there's a lot of energy 
And also, the very first tools we see, there are flakes. I'm not going to deny there are flakes. But there are a lot of pounding tools. And when I looked at the Hadza data and I was watching them, of course, they're pounding all the time because they're eating baobab seeds and they're pounding. And I thought, hmm, I mean, why couldn't you just pound a bone and get um, the marrow out of it? Also, I should say, it could be fora. Um, where Henry Bunn was working for a very long time looking at cut marks and uh, crushed bone. What we noticed, or he noticed, I should say, and pointed out to me, is that every hippo jaw has a divot taken out of it right where there is a big fat pad. So I found that extremely interesting because the energy from fat would actually feed a growing brain. And uh, as Bob Martin always said, the female will grow the largest offspring she can with the largest brain across anything. Well, you increase the energy enormously, then I can see where you could actually end up with the mother producing a larger-brained offspring to a limit of what her body can tolerate. Well, um I always like to make things more complicated than they need to be. Of course than, you do. I know you be. do. And I wrote a paper with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and on that note, <laughs> um, the, the, as I understand it, there's sort of two ways to look at the role that, um, that diet changes and, and that access to, um, to meat could play in encephalization. In one, in one version, and, and fat would be included. In, in one version, um, obtaining this great nutrient source, perhaps only great once it's cooked, but nevertheless, is a great nutrient source, enables us to grow a larger brain. The other version is that obtaining this easily digested nutrient source enables us to shrink our guts. And when our guts shrink, we're not spending as much energy metabolizing food and so we have this the surplus it's not the you know the surplus energy is then available uh, to build the brain with there and can you tease those apart at all yeah, um, this is a, the, there was the hypothesis by Leslie Allo that, that you trade what's going on in the gut with the brain. And I have to go back to Bob Martin yet again and say that what he was pointing out was that you increase energy in, you decrease the gut, and it also can increase the brain. So the two are going together, but the way he liked to point it out, and I always thought it made a lot of sense, is that it's going through the mother. And so it's not so much that the animal themselves, but it makes the sense in terms of reproduction because it's going through the mother. So I definitely think the two are connected. You decrease the guts. You don't have to spend as much energy in, in processing your food. You have the energy left over, and, and, and it's usually more easily digested energy, whether it be fat or cooked meat. And, uh, yes, you can. I think it's always made sense to me that that's the way it worked. Okay, thank you. Brianna? There were a couple of questions along the line, and you can see where this is uh, uh, coming from. A couple of questions along the line of, given these ideas about bone marrow availability, and actually Margaret mm -hmm. touched on this, but um, 
what sort of actualistic data do you have on scavenging for the inside of bones um, and uh, any work going on on bone marrow availability? So any actualistic work going on on that? That's a good question, and I don't think there has been as much actualistic work done on bone marrow. As far as thinking about the fossil record, though, um, I think you know percussion marks were only recognized in starting in 1988, and they're, I think, in some ways, harder to recognize on fossils than cut marks are. Um, and I have a really fun um, database that I try to keep up on, actually, from the um, early Stone Age, all of the sites that have evidence for butchery marks, including both cut marks and percussion marks. And I think the percussion mark, um, I think the percussion marks are under-recognized and under-reported. So I'm really enjoying the conversations about the importance of marrow because I think that's pretty significant. Okay. There's a, a couple of related ones. I just sort of maybe ask them together because they'll, they'll play off of each other. Um, you were working, and, and for, for good reason, you were working in a place that was a felid-dominated mm-hmm. environment, but how would the presence of other scavengers, mm-hmm. um, in particular hyenas, uh, affect the availability of, of um, scavenged resources? And is there any way to then tie in the availability of scavenged resources to um, the, the absolute population that would be supportable? Um, uh, Mm. hominid population. Um, Okay, so the first question about, you know, um, how do hyenas, what what difference do hyenas make? So hyenas have very specialized dentition for basically crushing bone. And so once you get hyenas, once you get large populations of hyenas, they kind of, they they clean up the um, African ecosystems. And so there are much fewer scavenging opportunities when hyenas are involved. Um, So I don't know if that fully answers the first question, potentially. Um, And the second question was about um, how how would that make a difference for the overall um, hominin population that could be supported? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not sure we have good ways to model that and think about that, partially because I think... um, hominins like carnivores were both pretty rare um, generally on the landscape um, certainly much more rare than herbivores and so I don't think we can confidently extrapolate um, carnivore populations or particularly like the proportions of felids versus hyenids in the past necessarily just from the fossil record the fossil record is all we have um, but I think that um, certainly in an area where um, felids were dominant and there were three different genera of saber tooth felids that were around in the past at the times that we're talking about when hominins were first eating meat and there have been propositions or hypotheses that um, it's actually scavenging potentially from saber-tooth kills, um, at least one of those genera probably was a solitary felid, more like lepers today may have stashed their kills in trees, um, and so those may have been really profitable scavenging opportunities for hominins. They're a little bit harder to model since we don't have saber-tooths around today. Yeah, I'd like to follow <laughs> up on that because I know that there was, a, there was a suggestion that some of the saber-tooths were specialists on very large animals and the whole saber-tooth thing. There was a time when it was believed that their teeth are so brittle that all they could really do is kind of run in 
you know, slit the jugular, and then I think there was even a suggestion that they then lapped up the blood and didn't really get into the carcass at all, mm -hmm. but otherwise that they would just eat the gut and leave the, the um, skeletal system completely intact. How, what's the status of that idea? Or do we know more about saber tooths now? So um, we will soon. Um, so I'm, I'm doing a research project actually with a member of the audience, Jennifer Parkinson, right now, studying, restudying a saber tooth den collection uh, in Texas, a place to see den where we have lots of saber tooth fossils and we have um, lots of baby mammoths. So we think, or at least the idea is that saber tooths are kind of dragging these baby mammoths and some adults as well, or mastodons, back to, um, to this den. And so um, we see tooth marks on some of these bones. So I think the idea that saber tooths were um, only using their teeth potentially for killing um, and not for eating at all, and that they would leave a lot of the carcass left over... I'm not sure about that. They certainly were flesh specialists, though, so they did not have the kind of jaw and tooth capabilities that even probably modern lions have in order to break up bones, particularly of really big animals. So from really big kills of saber tooths, especially if they were solitary, not social like lions were, I think that's a really good scavenging opportunity. And when did lions come on the scene? I think about somewhere between two and three million years ago. So modern lions, leopards are basically around in some form by this time. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the earliest stage, you know, the sort of three to four million, no lions... Well, well, or at least lions, not modern lions. Like so certainly there were, you know, um, things like lions around at that time. All right. Um, <laughs> specific question... And for some reason, I'm not sure this is the right word, but I can't remember it. Um, Fecaliths, uh, coprolites. Coprolites, yes. Yeah. Well, fe 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 <laughs> you know, stone feces. Mm -hmm. how, how far back uh, can coprolites give information about diet? And I suspect the coprolites can give information about diet as far back as we can find them. Um, and I know that there have been coprolites, at least, at least um, carnivore coprolites found in the fossil record, I think, for the past few hundred thousand years. Um, I don't know so much about um, you know, human coprolites, but I think that's an interesting line of evidence um, that would, <laughs> I don't know if we need more of it, um, <laughs> but it would be, I think it's a, I think it's an, um, a different and interesting line of evidence. But it looks, it sounds like there was more to the question. Well, is it, there's, is, I don't know if this is two part question. I don't know the relationship, but the the other part of this was when does the first evidence of cannibalism appear? And I assume this is talking about dietary cannibalism. Right. So the first evidence of cannibalism there is, I believe it's a fossil skull from Sturkfontein, a site in South Africa that's about two million years old that has um, butchery marks on it. Uh, but the first, so this is kind of one individual that seems to have um, decent cut marks on it. And um, But the first evidence of, of more um, systematic cannibalism comes in, I believe, at about 400,000 years from a site in Spain where there are hominids that are butchered basically in the same way that animals are butchered at this site. And so um, it seems like dietary or nutritive cannibalism is something that was um, rare just because hominins are rare, and so you're less likely to find them and less likely to find butchery marks on them. Um, but I would suspect that probably for the entirety of the um, evidence for tool use in our evolutionary history. So That's grim. <laughs>
This is a question. I'm tempted to see to ask John Speth to come up here, but uh, there's a question. There's a question. There's a question here about the would would fire be necessary uh, to make scavenging safe? When we hear about yeah. the bacteria, and I've mentioned John because uh, he's written a, a really nasty paper um, on, on, on modern human scavenging uh, or eating consumption of raw uh, mm-hmm. rotten meat. And if any of you have been to Iceland, I mean, rotten shark is a delicacy. So it is something that gets done. And I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, the, the evidence that um, Margaret talked about uh, um, in her talk about, or I think it was, um, or one of the speakers talked about with um, uh, the evidence for just bacterial growth and other things that can make scavengeable carcasses dangerous pretty quickly. I think it really depends on the timing of access to those carcasses. So if they are really quite fresh, um, I think you just use your nose. If they smell bad, if they look like they're disgusting, um, I suspect that they wouldn't be as um, useful for scavengeable resources. Okay, so be playing. Okay. Yeah, potentially. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Since the high-temperature cooking of animal fats can result in carcinogenic molecules, could this have been a, uh, a, a problem that would have possibly led to increased, um, uh, particularly gastrointestinal cancers, during human evolution? They'd have been so lucky uh, to be able to have uh, regular access to, to uh, overheated um, uh, fats, I would think. Uh, it, it seems to me uh, very much a, a question about today's world, where uh, we've dealt with a tremendous number of the basic nutritional problems, and we can afford to uh, worry about the great detail of um, the, the costs that come along with uh, all of the benefits. The important thing for the hominins uh, would surely have been what it is for other primates and for uh, hunters and gatherers today, which is getting enough access to energy. And the uh, amount of um, uh, carcinogenic uh, impact uh, would, I would have thought, be definitely extremely small compared to the the benefits coming from, from energy. However, you know, it's fascinating to think about the possibility that there has been some kind of adaptation to uh, some of the deleterious byproducts uh, that come from, uh, from cooking. And uh, so Maillard compounds is this uh, very complicated family of compounds that are produced uh, by the uh, ultimately the interaction of sugars and amino acids. And they're basically... Uh, uh, unique in their concentration uh, when produced by cooking. And uh, there is a little bit of sort of anecdotal evidence that humans are less susceptible to the deleterious consequences of some Maillard compounds than in other animals. And it'll be, this is a fascinating area to, to explore. Yeah, so, so you're looking at it. Yeah. Well, I'm not looking at well, it. I, no, but, I mean, you, well, you're looking at the question of whether other people you are looking, looking at, at it. it. Yeah, no. it will become a datum for you. Um, Okay. That's interesting. The, when, when I started uh, grad school, the, the story of human evolution was fairly simple. There was a, you know, a grass isle australopithecine, and it gave rise to a homo, and then it gave rise to, to advanced homo, and then here we are. And uh, now we now know that there's a, a lot of bushiness in the, in the family tree. 
Uh, do you believe that cooking food evolved once or more than once in the hominin lineage? Well, believe is, is a little strong because, uh, <laughs> you know, this is not a religion, this is science. Um, <laughs> In your opinion, is there evidence <laughs> supporting? Uh... But I, so, so the way I reconstructed, you know, there's, there's this conflict between the biological and the archaeological evidence, uh, I think of it. And the biological evidence uh, pushes us to saying that the, um, uh, the change in the uh, shape of the ribs indicating the smaller gut that Margaret referred to, um, the uh, smaller teeth, uh, the weaker jaw muscles, uh, a bunch of these anatomical uh, changes, uh, they all happen uh, just this side of two million years, let's say. And uh, so that's the biological evidence. The archaeological evidence is that uh, uh, fire came in very late. To me, the fascinating question about this is um, what is going to resolve it? And if it turns out that uh, for some reason we're able to get convinced that fire really wasn't controlled prior to, say, half a million years ago or just very, very occasionally. You know, there are sites like Vandenberg in South Africa which has it at a million and maybe a little bit more. But if it turns out that, that fire was controlled relatively late like that, then what on earth was responsible for the grassinization and reduction of the human digestive system if it wasn't cooking? And um, you know, to me, what, what is so interesting is that nobody's really suggested what that could be. The only thing that I can think of is that there would be a pretty much 100% focus on marrow fats or, or, or on fats. And the reason I say that is uh, you've got to go close to 100%. First of all, that doesn't take much tooth work. And um, second, um, the... Um, uh, let's see, where was I? <laughs> I'm so excited about this story. Um, <laughs> you, were pointing, you were pointing out that thoroughly rotten meat doesn't take much tooth work either. Yes, but, but that's not the point I wanted to make here. <laughs> the, point I, the point I wanted to make is that uh, as long as uh, the hominins had to resort sometimes to eating plants, then they needed to have the more robust jaws, the bigger teeth, the bigger um, guts to be able to uh, process them in the mouth and then ferment them in the, in the colon. And until you can overcome the need to eat raw plants at some time, then I don't see how you can get to that reduced digestive system of humans. So for that reason, it's just very, very difficult for me to imagine... Um, that the uh, evidence of the control of fire won't come up to um, you know, something around 1.9 million years ago. But if it doesn't, then you know somebody in the audience solved that problem. What did they eat? What about mechanical processing of food? Yes. Well, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so what about mechanical processing of food? And um, uh, uh, Katie Zink and uh, Dan Lieberman uh, have said that, you know, that this would um, make it easier to chew. So the problem I have with that is that, um, to my knowledge, we don't have any uh, examples from um, modern hunter-gatherers of processing of uh, plants for pounding um, to eat raw. And it's kind of difficult to imagine exactly how it is going to work to, to, to eat raw. You know, I mean, to, to, to pound the seeds and then put them into, uh, 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 well, a pot makes it particularly easy, or a damper, you know, a sort of uh, uh, pancake uh, type of thing that you can uh, put on a fire, that's fine. 
But what, you, you, you reduce this uh, uh, pounded uh, to something that you can eat as a powder? And, and remember that starch grains uh, are not normally broken down by pounding. So uh, to the extent that the plant part is important for producing starch, which is, should be uh, very important, then pounding is going to be no good. You need cooking to get the starch uh, reduced to glucose. But Rebecca's got a... Uh, Mardu and most Aboriginal groups that relied on wild tomatoes pounded them up. So they're pounding fruit. And part of the reason they're pounding up the fruit is to concentrate the energy so it's, it's, you can carry it and keep it long distances. Or reducing just, just, the, the, the water. You know, this is all the water, yeah. And also you can, you can actually get access some of the protein in the seeds by pounding it. Okay, so, so that, that sounds great, but it, it, it doesn't sound as though it would necessarily uh, increase the net energy value. It, it, it may not sound at all to the people in the back. Let me just repeat... <laughs> Let me just repeat that Rebecca was pointing out that among the people she works with in Australia, that they pound um, tomatoes and other fruits in order more in order to reduce the water content and, and make them more compact for, and easier to carry. Um, we, we got other questions here. Are we allowed to take these? Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you're... Baobab seeds are thirty six percent fat, and so when they pound them, they usually, and Melissa can speak to this, but obviously looked at them longer than I did. They didn't cook it. Okay, and so another example from the Hadza of, of East Africa. And, and you can do it twice because, of course, you can do it when the baobab seeds are ripe, and then you do it when the baboons have cooked it out, which so, makes it easier. So, so another, another, another ethnographic counterexample where people are pounding baobab seeds uh, to access the high-fat seed within. So there's... So th there are a few examples, and, and uh, uh, the, the devil may be in the details of how widespread they are. So mechanical processing is important some places. Okay. My masculinity. <laughs> How's your masculinity? Yeah, it's... it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not good. Um, are there any human cultures that have lost fire? No. Okay. Um, I just it, it, this is uh, I, I don't know if this is well. I'll just give you this one. You can you can decide whether or not to address that. Um, the, the the question about losing fire, um, you know, the, the the question that people do investigate more often is whether people have lost the ability to make fire for themselves. And there are some claims that that might have happened, but uh, it doesn't seem relevant because they can always get fire uh, by uh, going to the neighbors. And basically, once you have a population maintaining fire, then, I, then I they can keep it going. I saw the movie Quest for Fire. Exactly. <laughs> and am I aware that there is something called the Roadkill Cookbook? <laughs> As a model of the origins of the human predatory pattern... I'm dubious. <laughs> it, 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 it might tie in with running, though. <laughs> there, there's, there are two last... I, you can either stay here or not. Uh, there are two last questions. I'm not sure if we really have time to, um, to address them, although they're directed to, to all the speakers. Uh, I want to read them because I think what they do is they fit very nicely into what CARTA is all about. And uh, there's one. Obviously, a switch to meat-eating reduced, uh, um, induced a radical change in digestive systems, underlying genetics. How did we get from there 
uh, from here to there or from there to here uh, in any case. So, so what, are the, what are the underlying genetics involved in the restructuring of the body? And then a second one is, um, I, don't, I don't know if this is a slight, mildly aggressive question, but it, it's okay. Uh, where does your understanding of nutrition come from? Uh, how much do you con- consult with uh, nutritionists and uh, nutritional scientists? How does it impact your interpretations of observations if some of your fundamental beliefs about nutrition are flawed? Um, I think that the reason that, that I like those questions, and I'll, and I'll give you a chance to, to address it, but I like those questions because they both have built into them this incredible interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary complexity of understanding this problem. We've got people who, you know, uh, who study chimpanzees or who look at cut marks on bones, and in order to interpret what they're doing, we need to know some genetics and we need to know some nutrition. There's a, there's a lot of fields that have to come together. In the normal course of events, it's... People in these different areas go to conferences with other people in their own areas, and they talk to other people who study bones or who study uh, apes or whatever. Carter is one of these, these uh, a really great venue, I think, that brings together people from these different specialties. We can't, you know, we probably don't have as wide a net present in this room or at this symposium as we could use, but it's still wider than we normally get, and we start to try to get at some of these these questions, put these pieces together. With that said, um, how how do you interact with, and and this again is for for all of us, uh, on the nutrition specifically, where do you get the, the interaction and how much do you try to go for it? Um, nutritional science is a very funny science. Um, Marion Nessel... Says the guy who works on chimps. <laughs> um, Ma- Marion Nessel is uh, this um, very good uh, biochemist uh, who was invited to, to do a... Um, to teach a course something like 20, maybe 25 years ago uh, on nutrition uh, because the department needed it and she hadn't uh, gone into that area at all and she tells the story about how she got eight textbooks and opened them up and put them uh, in a row on a desk and, uh, and then saw what everybody said and she said the answers were just incredibly different. Uh, so there is a real danger, uh, or there was then, and, and even now I think there is a danger of being able to cherry-pick um, what results you want. Um, so, so having said that, um, let me just mention about cooking. You know, because... <laughs> well, I mean, look, the fact is that you know, cooking is hugely important for humans, okay? And so you, know, you would think that we would have a lot of information about what the impact of cooking is on the energy value of foods. And I was astounded when, um, almost 20 years ago, I I started thinking about the importance of cooking, and I went to the nutritional literature, and it wasn't there. It was really, really difficult to find. In our lab, we did the first darned experiments to looking at the uh, impact of cooking on um, meat and its digestibility and the cost of digestion associated with it. And I've just said that um, you do not have any data at the moment on the impact on what I think of as the most important macronutrient in human evolution, namely animal fats. So uh, where do we go for uh, nutritional science? You have to very often make it up yourself. (laughs) Oh. Uh, Alyssa, yes. 
I think this will be the last sort of response. Oh, yeah. this is not a very exciting you, you, end well, to the... But I think that was a really important question. So whoever posed that, thank you. This is something I struggle with um, <laughs> daily, weekly, monthly. Um, I do a lot of presentations and a lot of conferencing with nutritional sciences, um, food sciences, chemists. Uh, I do a lot of work with the nutrition community. So me personally, I do a lot of work that is totally embedded in nutrition. And I blame Margaret for that. Um, I blame Margaret because I came to graduate school here at UCSD and I wanted to ask these big grandiose questions about how ecology influences behavior and reproduction. And I was using food as my metric. And Margaret said, that's great. But what is in the food, right? What are you actually measuring? And I hadn't thought about that. And I would, I I hate to admit this, but I think a lot of the literature doesn't really think about that, particularly the literature as far as it pertains to uh, human foraging populations. And we have people in here, uh, Kristen Hawks, Nick Blurton jones um, and colleagues who were one of the very first teams that actually decided to work with uh, nutritional chemists to figure out what's in forager foods. So personally, I do a lot of work in nutrition sciences. It's very messy. And I will say that in the early 2000s, when I came back with wild Hadza foods, no commercial nutrition lab would take my foods. So Richard's lab is where I did all of my analyses of Hadza foods with a fantastic um, nutrition scientist named Nancy Lou Conklin Britton, who I think can beat the pants off anyone in terms of thinking about how to use all of these different methods. And she will often analyze a food, a wild food, with four different laboratory methods that she's found from all over the world and figure out where they overlap. So I think it depends on who you're asking in terms of our relationship with nutrition, but I think that as a discipline in general, particularly for those of us that are talking about food in general, um, it's very important to think about the nutritional components. And there are people, John Speth is in here somewhere, who really do this and do it very well, but there's not enough. So graduate students, go learn nutritional chemistry, please. It will, it will serve you well, I promise. I was supposed to make, uh, spend about five minutes summarizing the symposium, and I cleverly let the questions go on uh, to, to pretty much chew up that time, because I think the, the que answering your questions is a lot more important than listening to what I might come up with. Um, I will just say that, that this, the genesis for this uh, symposium um, came from uh, the fact that I work at a Savannah chimpanzee study site where we have red colobus and our chimps don't seem to eat them. And so I was presented with this puzzle about chimpanzee hunting and the reason we work there is to try to gain insight into the conditions that early hominins might have had. And so I started trying to pull all this together and, and contacting smart people who know more about both modern hunting and about chimpanzees than I do. And, and it's been, I've been tremendously pleased and, and learned quite a lot in the uh, process. I hope you have as well. I would like to now, I, so that's my summary is, is, uh, as far as it goes. I'd now, now like to give you to Ajit Varki. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to thank the Carta team and all those who made the symposium possible, the chairs, the featured speakers, sponsors and supporters, and to the audience for attending and for the great questions and really exciting and interesting symposium. And uh, I'd like to remind you that uh, we have uh, upcoming symposia, and you can look them up on the web. 
and uh, look forward to seeing you at the next one. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.